Hello and welcome to Star Cells and God. This is the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science, discoveries that have philosophical and theological implications, discoveries that actually point to the reality of God's existence. My name is Fuzz Rana. I'm a biochemist and a Christian apologist, and I'll be the host for today's program where we're going to be talking about wolf predation and chimpanzee sign language. And before we get into this discussion, I just want to encourage you to subscribe to our channel, uh, Reasons to Believe, on YouTube. Click the bell icon so that you can be informed of our new videos. We release new episodes of Star Cells and God every Thursday. And our website, reasons.org, is full of excellent resources on a variety of topics. To le learn more, go to www.reasons.org or you can follow us on social media at rtb underscore official. Uh, I'm joined in studio today by uh, Dr. Kyle Keltz, who is uh, a philosopher of religion. And so Kyle is here at Reasons to Believe as part of our Visiting Scholar program. So Kyle, it's a, it's a real pleasure to have you here with us today. And uh, uh, I'm grateful that you're going to be joining us for this conversation because uh, uh, the first discovery we're going to talk about today has to do with wolf predation, and you actually did your Ph.D. thesis on the issue of animal pain and suffering, and so really looking forward to having you on the show and, and looking forward to your, your insights into this really challenging uh, philosophical question with respect to God's existence and God's goodness. So welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show, Fuzz. Uh, I, I love the show format. I was I was looking at the videos on YouTube, and it just looks like a lot of fun. And I was excited to come on because really, you know, the the format really I think captures kind of the essence of of reasons to believe. You know, it's really great to see you guys get on there and just have fun and talk about new discoveries. And I was excited to talk about this to you this morning because, like you said, it, it has a lot to do with. Uh, what I covered in my dissertation and in, in my studies on the problem of animal suffering. And believe it or not, even the ape gestures and the ape sign language is going to touch on that, oh. too. So I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about uh, about it with you. So. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks, Kyle. Well, let's go ahead and, and get started this morning. And uh, I'll, I'll kind of ease into my discussion of wolf predation by, by talking about uh, my experience growing up in, in West Virginia. I mean, if there's any place in the world that I would call home, it'd be the, the hills of West Virginia. Um, uh, so I'm, a, I'm a, a mountaineer at heart, and I've just got incredibly wonderful memories about growing up in West Virginia. Uh, and, and one of those memories uh, that, that came back to me as I was preparing this discovery had to do with what it was like during deer season in West Virginia. Now, my, my father didn't hunt, so I, I didn't grow up hunting, but almost all of my friends hunted and their families hunted. And, um, and, and uh, hunting's a way of life, you know, in West Virginia. I think you're from Texas, so you understand yes. what I mean, I mean by that. And, 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 and so people like to hunt for the sport, but, you know, for, for most people, they also hunted as a way to put food on their table. You know, uh, there's... Poverty is pretty rampant in West Virginia, and it was when I was growing up. And so a lot of people, the way they actually were able to eat meat uh, was uh, through, the, through hunting. Mm -hmm. And deer season was a big deal. 
you know, because people, uh, my friends were always excited when deer season opened. And, uh, and so because it was so important though, for their families, they would go hunting with their families and they would end up missing days of school and deer season always opened up in late November, usually the week of Thanksgiving. And, and so it opened up Monday and Tuesday of that week. And so most schools would just either close on those days oh, wow. okay. or they would just grant <laughs> students permission to miss school with an excused absence uh, so that they go they could go deer he- hunting with their families but but of course in, in states like West Virginia where there's a very large deer population hunting is actually uh, really important not only in terms of again people being able to feed their families but it's important for natural resource management you know if you don't call the herds uh, the herd numbers will grow to such an extent that that deer will starve or they'll become very sick and infectious agents will start spreading through the population. Mm-hmm. So this hunting is a very critical part of, of, of again, uh, managing the herd numbers and, and the health of, of the herd. And this has led, uh, I think, a lot of ecologists to ask the question, is hunting actually a better way to manage herd numbers, uh, or is it better for natural predation to, to be the way in which herd numbers are controlled? And, and that leads us to this uh, paper that I want to talk about that was published recently in a journal called, uh, I think, The Frontiers of, uh, of Ecology and Evolution. It's written by a team of researchers from Michigan a Technological University. And um, uh, they were interested in a number of things in this paper. One was uh, the, the, the effect of wolf numbers on, uh, again, on moose populations uh, on the Isle of, uh, on the uh, uh, Royal Isle, or sorry, the Isle Royale, which is in Lake Superior, and I'll show you a map of that in a minute. Uh, but they also were, were uh, interested in really um, bigger questions, too, like, you know, what is the influence of selective predation on herd health? Uh, because, uh, and that, that concept refers to the idea that uh, many times predators, when they go after prey, will select certain members of the, of the group, right? They'll either go after juveniles or older individuals or sick or in weaker individuals. And, and so the question is, what effect does that have on herd health? So they were looking at a number of questions you know, the influence of, of natural predation versus hunting, uh, the influence of, of, of selective predation. They also were interested in uh, what effect does uh, predation have on the, on, uh, the occurrence of uh, genetic diseases within a herd population. And so a lot of things going on on this study, and it was really a 45-year study mm-hmm. uh, where the, the researchers would travel uh, from um, Michigan Technological University in Houghton to, again, the, the uh, Isle Royale National Park. And so here's a map showing uh, Houghton, Michigan, in the Upper Peninsula. That's where Michigan Technological University is located. And by the way, I actually lived in Houghton, Michigan for two years of my life when I was from two to four years of age. Uh, my oh, dad was a professor <laughs> in physics at Michigan Institute of Technology, which is what MTU was known at in those days. Uh, but they, they would uh, tr- essentially, they, they did their work on the Isle Royale, uh, which is uh, an, an archip- archipelago in, the, in Lake Superior. 
and it's a national park, so it's protected land. And here's what it, it looks like in, in real life. So it's a beautiful, a beautiful setting. But they would travel to uh, the Isle Royale, uh, again, for, for 45 years, looking at uh, the, the numbers of wolf on the island, the, or wolves on the island, the, the moose population. They would do this in the winter through very careful aerial surveys. In the summer, they would go onto the island and do field work. Uh, they also would, when they discovered moose carcass, they would study the moose carcass to determine the age of that individual when it died. Mm -hmm. So with juveniles, they could look at tooth eruption patterns. For adults, they would look at micro-anatomical wear on the teeth. Uh, they could de determine whether the moose died from starvation and malnutrition by looking at bone marrow. They could determine if it was uh, if it, the moose died from predation, uh, because they could look for field signs that would indicate that the moose was actually attacked by wolves. Uh, and then they they uh, uh, the, the last option would be accidents. Uh, those are the three causes of moose moose, moose death, disease. You know. Uh, uh, or and, and well, disease is another one, but starvation, basically predation and, and accidents are the right. primary causes of death. Um, but they also were studied the skeletons of the moose to determine if they suffered from osteoarthritis. And the the reason why they did that is osteoarthritis will, you know, events in in the in the moose skeleton, and um, they could grade it as to whether it was mild or severe osteoarthritis, but uh, this ha disease has a genetic component, so they were using this as a as a proxy for the transmission of or, or the the occurrence, not the transmission, but the occurrence of genetic diseases uh, within the moose population, where you know uh, genetic disorders are an example of a non-communicable disease versus uh, you know a parasite or other infectious agent. So um, so this is how they were gathering the data. What a commitment to do that over the course of, of 45 years. <laughs> yeah. um, 45 years, and all I have to show for it is one article. Yeah, one, no. <laughs> one paper published. No. <laughs> and, you know, but but uh, So anyway, um, uh, let me quickly just find uh, the results here. So what they discovered was something, again, really interesting, is that uh, they, they had evidence that the moose, sorry, sorry that, that the wolves would go after either juvenile moose or older moose. And um, this is actually in, important because they tend to be weaker members of the group that are, are more vulnerable. Uh, but these are also two populations within the moose herd that actually don't contribute to the reproductive fitness of the herd. Juveniles are too young to, to, have, to reproduce, and the older uh, individuals are too old to reproduce. So right. this actually Im improved the reproductive fitness of the, of the herd by selective uh, predation. But in addition to that, they saw that there was very little evidence that the moose would actually kill prime-aged individuals in the prop population. And if they did kill a prime-aged individual, it would be an individual that was suffering from severe osteoarthritis, which compromised its mobility and made it more vulnerable. Uh, and and, and uh, this is important because it actually eliminates or reduces the occurrence of osteoarthritis in the population. So they extrapolate saying uh, by having the wolves prey on 
members that are suffering from genetic diseases, it actually makes the overall herd uh, genetic makeup much more healthy and much more robust. So the wolves are playing a very important role in maintaining the reproductive fitness and the health uh, of the moose herd. Interestingly enough, they discovered that for older individuals, whether they had osteoarthritis or not, had no bearing on whether or not they were killed by the moose. It was only really impacted prime age individuals. And, and this makes sense because older individuals are losing vision, they're losing their sense of hearing and sense of smell, they're, they're, they're losing muscle mass, you know, uh, they're just less mo mobile, they're more sedentary, uh, they're not able to respond to things happening around them. And so adding osteoarthritis to the mix is really going to make very little difference. You know, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're, they're so vulnerable uh, that, that whether they have, you know, arthritis or not is, is really has no bearing on, on things whatsoever. Uh, but anyway, so that, you know, really, you know, really interesting study that, again, shows that, that wolf predation really has a, a really big impact on the, the health of the herd right, the reproductive fitness of the herd. It has an impact on the genetic robustness of the herd. Uh, and, and they hope that this study will actually help to rehabilitate the image of the wolf. I mean, the wolves almost went extinct. Oh, right. And, and so they, they recovered, and now the populations are so large that they're considered to be nuisance predators, mm. you know, where there's a bounty on wolves in many states because they, they go after cattle. And what this study shows is that if you actually overhunt wolves and reduce their populations, it's going to have a negative impact on the health of herd animals that are naturally occurring. And so part of their argument is that we really need a better strategy for managing wolf numbers than just indiscriminately killing them uh, because they're nuisance predators. But also what this study shows, and this again impacts people that like to hunt, is that hunting is actually a less preferred way of managing herd population numbers than natural predation because hunters go after the prime individuals, right? The prime aged individuals, right. yeah. <laughs> the healthiest individuals in the herd, whereas natural predators are going after those members that are, the, that are weak, that are vulnerable, that actually compromise the health of the herd. So even though hunting is necessary in many places because there's not natural predators, um, it's still, you know, so hunting plays an important role, but the preference would be natural predation, not hunting, as a way to control herd numbers. Now, this is where I'm hoping to, to get you uh, involved in, in the conversation now that I've kind of summarized the, the work. Uh, you know, this has really important implications for the whole issue of animal, you know, death and suffering. And you know, you you wrote a book. Uh, I should have brought the book down here, down with me into the studio. Uh, that's a you know um, that's a your dissertation that's published where right. you you handled this whole issue of animal death and suffering. And you know, surprising to me at least initially, but then the more I thought about it, I understood why this is such an, a big issue for many people that are atheists that are skeptics. Is that it? In, in the idea of animal pain and suffering really, uh, for many people, impacts their, their perception of God and his goodness, right? You know, if nature is red in tooth and claw and there's animal death and pain and suffering that characterizes the natural order, how could this be the handiwork of a God 
who's all powerful, all knowing, and all good, right? right. Uh, you you wouldn't expect a world that's red in tooth and claw. And so either God doesn't exist because of that logical incompatibility, or if he does exist, he's not all powerful or all knowing or all good, right? And, and so, you know, this is a, a very serious challenge. And, um, you know, one, one response to that is that maybe there are good reasons why, you know, God would allow, you know, animal death. And, and, and what we see is that the study gives us insight as to what one of those reasons might be is that natural predation actually is critical for maintaining the stability of ecosystems and the health of, of you know, of the, the primary consumers in ecosystems. Yeah, and, and the benefits of it go even just beyond the, the, the herd or the, that one group that the predators are going after, right? Um, I've, I've seen studies that talk about how it not only keeps that, that population healthy, but it also protects other more vulnerable uh, prey groups uh, from getting dominated by this one prey group, right? Have you ever looked at studies no, like that? No, that's, that's fascinating. So yeah. t- tell me more. So. Well, it's, uh, I can't think of like a, a specific example, but, you know, it would be like having uh, moose or, or uh, and, and then having another group that the, the, the moose might dominate the island uh, and then that other group would hurt from it. So whenever the wolves prey on the moose, it, it would help the other more vulnerable population. And also, they, uh, if, if the prey populations a lot of times, especially in these predator-prey relationships, if they, um, if, they get, if they get overpopulated, that also hurts the, the vegetation because right. then they start overgrazing, and it generally just hurts the entire ecosystem. Right. So isn't that, you know, it's, it's really when you think about animals eating each other, like you said, we think the first thing we think is that's terrible, you know, it. What good can come out of that? But then you 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 know they study it, and it and it really looks like it's something that's just built into creation. And we realize that if we didn't have animal predation, um, the world would be so much more different. You know. Yeah. Well, you know, and and I think what this study really highlights is that if it wasn't for wolf predation, there would be more suffering in the, not less suffering. Oh right, right. Right, because now the yeah. herd is genetically not healthy. You know, it's the, the the numbers would swell to the point where the moose would would actually you know um, begin to starve and suffer from malnutrition. You know, because there's not enough food, it would, could trigger an ecosystem collapse if they overgrazed. You know, and it, it's it's really interesting because they noticed that uh, in the field studies that when the wolf uh, numbers were higher, there was very little incidence of osteoarthritis in the in the moose population. And when the wolf numbers were lower, there was a greater occurrence of osteoarthritis in the population. Mm. And so, again, the, the herd is just healthier and there's less pain and suffering, <laughs> ironically, when there's actually active predation, yeah. you know, not, not more pain and suffering. And so you, you, you see this as part of a, an elegant design of nature, not uh, something that, that, that reflects, I think, the... the, the uh, the malevolence of a creator or, you know, or the capriciousness of a creator. Right. And, and, and this really kind of touches on kind of this tension that I saw when I was studying the, the problem of evil and the problem of, of so-called natural evil, you know, 
because we see like the Bible and philosophy kind of point us to this idea that God created the world to point to himself, like he created the world to glorify himself. And, uh, you know, I know uh, sometimes, uh, you know, like young earth creationists and others think that, well, this is just a fallen world and animal uh, death is so evil and, and it just shows how bad human sin is because it's the result of, of human sin. But it's always kind of scared me to try to put this label on creation like it's this horrible thing because it's that seems to be in tension with what the Bible is saying, right? Because like we, you know, like, and I know this is something RTB teaches is that when you look at the Psalms, the psalmist is saying the psalmist mentions that God gives uh, the animals their the, their food, yeah. and uh, and and is praising God for this. So it, this seems to be kind of like a post fall thing, and even animals getting their food. Uh, Prey and right. uh, uh, predator, predators getting their food is is something that we can uh, that points to God in some way. Um, but also um, an, another some some more tension that I saw was was yeah like so we're trying to say um, you know that that God uh, creates this like something's wrong with the world, but at the same time when we look at the world, it looks like it was it wasn't a mistake. It looks completely like designed mm-hmm. and it's this fine-tuned machine that is here to to make us survive. But the tension becomes, well, how come human beings die in this? You know, why does it kill us every once in a while? So I just I just found that so fascinating. And and what I was studying was um kind of and we've talked about this before, but what I was studying was this old uh idea that really goes all the way back to ancient Greek thought of that great chain of being, you know, mm-hmm. the hierarchy of being. And the medieval philosophers took that idea over and they argued that God creates to, to communicate who he is. And when he creates something, any world he's going to create is going to be finite. So it's going to have a limited amount of resources, uh, but it's going to have all these different levels of goodness in it. So inanimate objects, plants, like sensitive, uh, I mean, uh, vegetative life, sensitive life like animals and then human beings at the top of this metaphysical hierarchy. Uh, But it was just so interesting to kind of try to reconcile this idea of this being God's good creation. But also it includes animal death, uh, but also uh, sometimes it can kind of kill us. So I was was wrestling with all that. But where animal death seems to come into play is a part of the idea about the hierarchy is that everything lower on the metaphysical hierarchy is is meant for everything higher on the hierarchy, and, and it was it's just amazing that this is some ancient idea from philosophers like Aristotle and and, and others, you know, big long tradition developing it, and then you get to our our day, and it's be, it seems like it's basically being confirmed mm-hmm. in the study of ecology, right? Just everything working together. And it's and it's amazing, right? Because if we didn't have predation, I mean, I mean, how, how, what do you think would happen if there wasn't animal predation? Like, would that have made a huge effect, and and maybe human beings' life would be? Like, well, you know, I, I mean, I think ultimately you wouldn't have sustainable ecosystems on the planet because there have been some studies done where they've been able to do natural experiments. Uh, because uh, one study that I, I, I think of was published a number of years ago where in Venezuela they flooded a valley. Uh, uh, some hydroelectric concern was putting in a dam, and they flooded a valley. 
And so high areas in that valley actually formed these islands. And there was a handful of islands that formed. And some of them just happened to have predators on those islands. And others were formed without predators. Mm. And they were able to then to, to compare the ecosystem health on those different islands. And the islands with predators had a, a thriving ecosystem. Islands without predators were undergoing ecological collapse. Wow. You know, and you know, there's some ecologists that are concerned that we're entering into the, you know, the, the sixth great mass extinction. And what are the animals that are disappearing from ecosystems all over the world are large-bodied, you know, uh, predators that are kind of at the top of the of the food chain. And mm-hmm. as they disappear, you can literally see ecosystems undergoing uh, undergoing radical transformations as a result of that. And, and it's not for the good. Those ecosystems are becoming less healthy, more vulnerable, more fragile. And so, it, you know, you couldn't, ima- you know, the science is telling us that we don't want to live in a world where there's not predation. And, and unfortunately, animal, you know, death is part of that predation. But it's, you know, the more that we're learning about it, the more that we're seeing that, that, that in, you know, the economy of ecosystems, that animal death is actually minimizing the pain and suffering. It's not promoting the pain and suffering. Yeah, so, so what we see is what we, what kind of on the surface looks like some bad thing to us because it's unpleasant actually ends up being for our good, right? Because yeah. it sustains the ecosystem and makes life possible for us. Yeah. And, and, and kind of something you said reminded me of uh, like your point that, so, it, I mean, there just seems to be layer upon layer of not only, I mean, you know, animal predation obviously does, isn't pleasant, but it looks like with the predation, the suffering is minimized, even if we are worried about that, right? Because not all, you were saying that it, it, it um, curtails like the uh, genetic disorders, but uh, what you were just saying was that whenever they go into an area, uh, it's it's a collapse of the ecosystem, and 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 that's like that would make sense, right? So like if the prey population got huge and they eat all the plants, they're going to starve to death, yeah. and that's that in itself is going to be suffering, right? Yeah. So I mean, it's not only helping them be like the healthiest versions of themselves, the ones that survive, <laughs> but also they're not they're going to have plenty of food because they're not going to eat it all, right? And if you're one of the more vulnerable prey populations, you're going to actually be able to survive, and everyone's going to have plenty of food, and, and all the animals yeah. will be happy, right? Yeah. So well, you know, and, it's and, amazing. And how there's it all studies, works together. Sh- yeah, studies showing that when you have predatory activity in ecosystems, it actually promotes biodiversity, in, which is to your oh. point, right? About protecting the more vulnerable uh, prey populations who would otherwise be squeezed out yeah. by the more dominant prey populations. So anyway. You know, so this, you know, the, the idea of animal pain and suffering and the problem of evil is a very challenging issue. But I think, you know, to follow after uh, what I've seen Al- Alvin Plantiga do is to say, well, maybe that syllogism is incomplete and that there is a good reason why God would allow this. And, oh, yes, and, yes. And, and what we're seeing in science are pointers to some of those reasons why God would create a world like this and that it would be fully compatible with the idea that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. Yeah, and I also think it speaks to this idea that we should kind of stray away from that more Gnostic idea that the physical world is some evil place, right? Mm -hmm. 
because, I mean, we might not like animal predation, but it is a part of God's design for this beautiful world yeah. to keep it beautiful, but also to keep us here and right. keep us healthy and, and have the whole system right. work together you, you know, so we can glorify God for that. Yeah, and, and I think it's interesting that that really this problem arises in part bec- when we start thinking about God strictly in philosophical terms as opposed to thinking about God in biblical terms, right? Because when yeah. we, as you're pointing out, when you go to Scripture, God is described as providing the prey for the predators, and he's being worshipped for that. And so the, the, the biblical concept of God doesn't see animal pain and suffering as being incompatible with God's goodness, yeah. right? But it, it's a manifestation of God's goodness and his providential care for the world that he's made, so. Yes, and, and God did give us animals to eat, you know, yeah. And in a lot of the Old Testament law, when they made those sacrifices, uh, I mean, I don't want to oversimplify it or, or disrespect it anyway, but it, it is almost like a barbecue in some sense of the word, right? They yeah. would sacrifice the animals, and then they cooked them and ate them. So, yeah. uh, you know, eating animals, it's, uh, it's yeah. not necessarily a bad thing. So, right. Okay, well, uh, why don't we move on, to, Kyle, to, to your discoveries that you want to share with us. And so... Uh, um, I'll just turn the floor over to you. Okay, great. Yes, and uh, this really—I mean, it's—it's a—it seems like a completely different topic, but it really is going to touch on mm-hmm. pretty much uh, something similar, like what we've been talking about. Because as we said, my my research has been into the problem of animal suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and uh, it, we've been throwing out that term. I think you you pretty much have already explained it, but I'll just say it one more time. Sure. Sure. So if you know if you hear someone say the problem of animal suffering, that's uh, where atheists argue that if God was all knowing, all powerful, and all good, it seems like He wouldn't need to uh, use animal suffering to make a to prepare a place for human beings to live. So when we look in the natural history of the earth, and we and it looks like animals have have a disease, suffering, and death for millions of years before human beings even got here, uh, atheists argue that, okay, well, this seems to be like evidence that God doesn't exist, because why would an all-loving God do that? Uh, So a major part of my research was actually trying to get some insight into, uh, you know, what do we think is happening when animals do suffer? They Mm -hmm. obviously, most animals, you know, unless you're talking about really simple life forms, most animals seem to be conscious of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been philosophers in the history of philosophy who've kind of argued, well, maybe they're just not conscious of anything, and it looks like that they are. But, but I, I, I don't like to go down that road. It seems like they obviously are conscious of the world. So, so if they are experiencing pain, um, it, is that like when humans experience pain? Mm-hmm. So, a big part of my research had to do with the differences between animals and humans. Um, so. Uh, now, and that's kind of where my my article comes in. Uh, it's an article uh, by a researcher at the uh, research. He's a research associate at the Institute for German Linguistics at the University of Marburg, Germany. Okay. Uh, I've never been there. I, I looked at a picture of it. It looked like Hogwarts. Uh, I was kind of <laughs> jealous that he gets to work there, but um, <laughs> but it's it's uh, it's called overlooked evidence for semantic compositionality and signal reduction in wild chimpanzees. So one thing I'm really interested in, uh, especially because I've been concerned about the differences between humans and animals, 
is is language. Why is it that human beings have language, and why is it uh, and do animals have capabilities like humans do? It's a it's a it's a really important uh, a big part of my defense of theism against the problem of animal suffering is that I don't think that. Uh, and I think there's also biblical reasons for this, but philosophically, I don't think that animals uh, basically are self-aware. I don't think they have souls like human beings do. And there's this, um, there's this, there's an argument that actually a philosophical argument that actually pulls all this out. Um, uh, I actually, I, I brought kind of a formal. Sure. Version of it, if you'd like me to read it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, so uh, it's this old, it actually, it goes all the way back to Aristotle. He argued that the difference between human beings and animals is that humans can uh, understand universal abstract concepts and store that. But the, the issue is that you can't store a universal like justice or, or redness or triangularity. Those abstract concepts, you can't store it in a physical thing like your brain. Um, I, I get this formula. It's it's a it's an argument that was that was uh, defended by Aquinas and other classical mm-hmm. philosophers. Um, but this 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 argument this form of the argument actually comes from a book called uh, Mind, Matter, and Nature by a philosopher of mine named James Madden. Mm-hmm. But here it's called the storage ar- argument, uh, the storage problem argument, and he formulates it like this. He says. Uh, it's it's four premises and a conclusion. It says, if thought emerges from a neurophysiological process, then there should be no feature of thought that cannot, in principle, be accounted for by the features of that neurophysiological process. Okay. Okay. Thought has universal content, kind of like I was just talking about. Three, because they are particulars, neurophysiological processes have no features that can account for universal content. Four, therefore, there is a feature of thought that cannot be accounted for by a neurophysiological process. And five, therefore, thought does not emerge from a neurophysiological process. Basically, what it's saying is, you know, take an example like justice. Mm-hmm. Say we see someone get mugged and then the police show up, apprehend the mugger, and put him in jail. We, we abstract from that the concept of justice, right? Justice has been served. Right. But we didn't see justice, did we? We saw a bunch of physical events, and we right. abstracted that concept. So when you think of like the concept of justice, it's this abstract concept like triangularity. When you look at a triangle, you're not looking at triangularity. You're looking at a particular triangle. So anyways, the, the whole point is that you can't store these in something physical because we, we find the forms in the, uh, the examples of themselves. So mm-hmm. um, you can't cut open someone's head, and you won't find a triangle in there. Uh, right. You won't find... When they're thinking about redness, you won't find the color red. So we just think it's it's philosophical evidence that the the human beings have immaterial. There's something immaterial about us, right? Because we know these things. It's in us in some way, right. but you won't find it in our brains. Uh, so, anyways, I mean, I know that's all abstract, but what 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 interests me about that is because when you understand that, I think it can help us. It gives us uh, some philosophical insight into why we think that humans are able to have language and animals aren't. Right, because we can take these concepts and we can form, you can infuse uh, physical things with meaning, like like the words on my mug. You know, right. it's just some it's just some uh, ink or, or or you know whatever they use to make these labels, but we've put meaning into it. Right. With animals, we think uh, it's more of everything is they see the world because they aren't because they don't have like rational souls. Uh, 
they it thing everything is more on the level of particulars for them. So we use symbolic thought. They for them everything is more of a sign. It points to something like a reward or a punishment. For us, it has meaning. For them, it doesn't. Now, my uh, article talks about chimpanzee. Uh, uh, th- this specific one is talking about uh, a study done on chimpanzees in the 80s. Okay, now th- it's not necessarily like a. Uh, did you have the article on your slide? I don't. Okay, no worries. Yeah, it's uh, again, it's called Overlooked Evidence for Semantic Compos- Compositionality and Signal Reduction in Wild Chimpanzees. So it was a study done in the 80s. So it's not necessarily a new discovery, uh, but this researcher is, is arguing that maybe there's some overlooked um, evidence in that study that shows that chimpanzees really are able uh, capable of doing some kind of language activity similar to human beings. Oh, oh so the researcher is actually going back to an older study and mining data and yes. looking at it in, with fresh eyes. Okay, got right, it. Right, right. Yeah, so and and what happens was in this study uh, there were they were uh, looking at a group of chimpanzees, wild chimpanzees, and uh, you know honestly, whenever I looked at this study, I th- it looked like the evidence was there weren't too many observations. There's a chart that shows it, but he was he was focusing on this one specific. Uh, what what would happen is they were foraging, and uh, this group of chimpanzees, whenever they would forage, they would break up into no more than three groups, but a lot of times they couldn't see each other. And there was an alpha, alpha male they named Brutus, and he would, uh, he would do two things. He would drum on trees, and he would kind of make a call. They don't think that the calls really had anything to do with it more than to just identify who was drumming. But so the, the drumming is what mainly did the signals. Uh, one signal would cause the, all, the entire group to rest for about an hour, and, an, and another type of signal would cause them to change direction. He would just beat on these trees and, it, you know, giving everybody commands, they can't see him the whole time. So mm-hmm. it's really interesting. But uh, so there were, but there, there's two uh, major types of drumming that they were observing at first. Uh, one type is where he would drum once on one tree and then he would go to another tree and drum on that. That was the signal that he used to cause the entire group to change direction. Okay. And it's interesting because I think basically if he, um, it, it's in the article, but I think if he would like drum on one tree and then drum on the other, they would travel in that direction. And somehow oh. they were able to tell that by just hearing it. Okay. The second kind of signal was when he would drum twice on the same tree and that told everyone to rest for about an hour. <laughs> okay. Now where the, oh, and I've been using the word compositionality. I need to define that to make sure everyone knows what we're talking about. It's actually uh, more of a concept that comes from linguistics. Um, One uh, big capability that human beings have uh, in in being language users is that uh, because we think symbolically, we take uh, what linguist, linguists call f- uh, phonemes, I think I'm pronouncing yeah, that right. right. It's basically atoms of meaning. So we'll take uh, one thing that means something and, and we'll, we'll combine it with something else and we, we form new types of meaning by combining things that individually mean other things, right? Yeah. I was thinking of uh, examples of this to kind of give everybody 
you know, it makes me think of like words like dragonfly or sunflower, yeah. you know. Yeah. Those two butterfly, words. Butterfly, yeah. Yeah, butterfly. Oh, yeah, that's a great example. Right, because those two words apart mean something, but when we put them together, it means something entirely else. But it, it's also on the, the level of letters. Like a, a great example is the letter I. When it's by itself, it's a first personal pronoun, right? But if you just add one letter to it, it can become a verb. It, beca- it can become a pronoun. It can become a preposition, you know. So you can you, you can just combine one letter with it, and you get words like it, is, in, uh, things like that. So, so as human beings, we have what's that's that's compositionality, and the, uh, our researcher he defines it like this. I don't know if this will help. It's kind of technical, but he says, semantic compositionality refers to the communication capacity to combine structures and their meanings into sequences with derived meanings. Uh, with the sequences meaning uh, being a function of the meanings of its parts and the rules applied to arrange the parts. Okay, so he he thinks that there's evidence that there's compositionality among these chimpanzees. Now, um, because the, uh, the 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 fact that Brutus is drumming on one tree then another tree, and that's that's where the composition is coming. Oh, well, yeah. Well, um, there was a third signal that I didn't mention, oh, okay, and this okay. is where it comes into play. Okay. So they they saw that Brutus. Um, a third type of signal. So what was our, our first two is uh, he would drum once on one tree, drum once on another tree. A second signal, and that told him to change direction. And a second one was drum twice, and that told everyone to rest. Well, a third sequence they saw was he would drum twice on one tree and drum once on another tree, and that would cause the entire group to rest and then change direction. Okay. Now, I found it interesting that in the article they said it didn't matter which order he did it in. When he did this third type of sequence, whether he drummed twice on the first tree and then drummed once on the second tree, or if he drummed once on the first tree and twice on the second tree, the group always rested for an hour and then changed direction. What he thinks is that this is evidence for compositionality because mm-hmm. if if we want to just do simple addition, you'd think that they would end up Right, the the Brutus would do four drums, wouldn't he? Like, yeah. uh, if he wanted them to rest, he would just knock twice on the tree, and if he wanted them to change direction, then he'd knock once, and then change and and knock on another. So uh, uh, he was just saying, you know, this is uh, this seems to be something overlooked. It, that looks a little bit more impressive, doesn't right. it? Yeah. Uh, and that that's what I was yeah. I was wondering what you what you thought of that. Like, what do you think of that when he says it seems to be like compositionality when there's this third type, and it's not just adding together, so it's not two and then right. one and one. It's two and then one, and then they're resting and, and right. changing direction. Well, I mean, I guess on the surface you would say that it does indeed appear like there's something analogous to to compositionality going on there, right? Or right. maybe the antecedents uh, to, to compositionality in that. Yeah, and I will say it does seem to be impressive that it is, it's a two-in-one, not just a, a two and then a one-in-a-one. Yeah. Um, I, I, uh, I have a, some doubts, though. You know, what you and I have been talking about, because we've been uh, working separately on the issue of whether Neanderthals are, are human or not, right. um, is, is methodology. And something in that I've that that we've learned in animal cognition studies is that the uh, animal uh, researchers are taught to be kind of skeptical of these higher order processes, 
uh, it's just kind of a methodology, an anti-anthropomorphism that's they're, right. they're, they're told to try to avoid. If you can find a simpler explanation, right. then go with that, unless there's no other conclusion that you can reach. One thing I was thinking about was that instead of, like, yes, there is a, there is a two and a one, so it does seem to be a new thing, but what if that's just a, instead of combining these two, they just see it as a third one? Right. And and that actually that's what I thought about. Uh, doesn't that make sense? Because right. uh, I thought it was striking that because um, right if you if he does two, then they rest. If he does one and one, they change direction. But what they found was it doesn't matter what order it was. If he does two and one or one and two, they rest and then change direction. Wouldn't you think that if if it was compositionality? that when he did one and then two, maybe they would change direction and then rest, right. but they didn't. So I was wondering if this seems mm-hmm. to be more like a case of re- like um, a, just a third signal. Right. right. That in, like instead of, like we're, get, we're think, maybe thinking too much into it, instead of them hearing, you know, combined signals, it's more like them just hearing three, right. and that's, it's a third type. Yeah. But I wanted to talk to you about another study that kind of, I think, sheds even more doubt on it. Okay. I I found an article. uh, This is titled uh, Great Ape Gestures. Oh, and I didn't mention that, this this first one, but all this is going to be in the description of the the video, everything, right? The the first one uh, was from a journal called Animal Cognition. This, This one is from a journal called Human Evolution. Uh, it's from the 90s, but I think it, it was very relevant to mm-hmm. this. It's it's titled, Great Ape Gestures, Intentional Communication with a Rich Set of Innate Signals. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, a group of researchers who studied great apes uh, in the 1990s. And they were, it's a little bit different. Uh, they were studying ape gestures. And this is really impressive. If you look at this article, what they found was that in great ape, uh, communities now, and, and and great apes. This includes chimpanzees, right? Yeah. So I mean, we're talking chimpanzees, gorillas, bonobos, and, and yeah. all sorts. Yeah. They found that within these communities, they have like seventy to eighty different gestures that mm. that that have different functions. Um, one thing I thought was kind of interesting is that a lot of them are found to be redundant. They mean the same thing, and if and if and if an ape is like trying to you know get a point across or however you'd say it, and it doesn't work, they switch to another one that's that means the same thing. Okay, <laughs> uh, they get kind of um, upset and they they try to do that now. But the main point, and and um, I was just going to highlight just a couple things that from the study, I, I think, uh, and and I thought this was amazing. But what they were saying is that they. There are about 70 to 80 gestures in these communities. What they found was the gestures are the same across species, mm. ape species. Interesting. Right? And um, this led the researchers to conclude that the, the gestures are more innate. Mm. Uh, they had a couple issues with it. One was that they didn't think that they every ape had all the time and the know-how to teach every every other ape and to understand all seventy to eighty gestures, right? Uh, but also the fact that it, that the same gestures were used across gorillas, chimpanzees, bonobos, all the great ape families, they just thought this looks a lot more innate mm-hmm. uh, than 
than culture, right? right? Because a, a prediction you could make if if, you, if they're creating meaning like humans right. do, right. you would assume that that not only intraspecies, right. the different groups would have different uh, signals, right? But also, especially across uh, right. great ape family, you know, right. they would have totally different things. But you see that they all have similar gestures. Right. Right. Um, so I, I had a couple of things highlighted. Uh, one of them was just a quote from the second article. He says, or they say, it is, is not only simpler to view each species' repertoire as largely determined by, bi- by biology, but this also explains the available facts well, accounting for the phylogenic distribution of shared gestures shown in figure one. They, yeah. they listed a bunch of them. Um, another interesting thing was that they didn't think that there was evidence for compositionality. Ah, interesting. Uh, among all those 70 to 80 gestures, and I had a, a quote uh, on, yeah. th- on that conclusion as well. They say, all ape species sometimes produce gestures in series as well as making them singly. Several studies have examined whether structured conjunctions of gestures modify or change the meanings of individual gestures. The results have been uniformly negative. Mm. No convincing report has been made, and this is in the 90s, but yeah. no no convincing report has been made of any syntactical change of meaning based on co-occurrence with another gesture, and gestures given in a series have the same individual meaning. So I thought that was amazing. And and uh, the thing about, uh, you know, my, my article, Overlooked Evidence for, for Compositionality in Wild Chimpanzees, this is from 2022, and he's just yeah. thinking it was overlooked evidence. I think because um, it looks like the, their huge repertoire of 70 mm-hmm. to 80 gestures right. looks innate. Uh, and because this study of these wild chimpanzees was done in the 80s, I think, you know, the if you look at that article, there were only like 22 observations yeah. of this. So it was a, it was a very low set right. of observations. And I just think if they were able to, which I don't think we ever can because it was so long ago, uh, if we were able to look at that population more, maybe we would find similar right. things as to the gestures. Right. And I mean, it's it's one alpha male doing right. it, so it would be really hard to study, but I, I'm skeptical that he was right. he was forming new meaning. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah, so in other words, when you, you apply kind of the broader understanding of whether or not great apes display compositionality and by and large, there's very little evidence. It's it becomes really interesting to think that this one particular study with limited number of, of observations is somehow overturning that broader that broader understanding. Yes, right. You know, and and you know, I mean, it's interesting because I think we want to be very careful about conflating animal communication with what we do as human beings, because again, animals are communicating with a with a set set of signals and you know we we've had dogs and cats over the years and there're just certain you learn when you're become a pet owner that dogs do certain things to communicate whether they're afraid whether they're happy you know whether they're friendly whether they're aggressive you know cats you know through their you know are communicating signals to one another and you know part of the deal as a pet owner is you learn to what what the animal is trying to communicate with its body language and right. you know and and that you, that's a way in which you can 
you know, begin to understand your animal a bit, a bit better. But, you know, dogs and cats are doing, in a sense, qualitatively what chimpanzees appear to be doing with gestures, right? That yeah. this is, this, the, the cats and the dogs are born innately with this understanding of how to communicate and then how to recognize what other members of their species are, are communicating with those, that body language. So animal yeah. communication is, is very real, but it's qualitatively different than what we're doing as human beings, you know, because we're, we're yes. representing the world symbolically, right? Yeah, we're, rep- we're, we're understanding the world, we're representing it symbolically, and their language is more like signs that point to things, right? right. And, uh, you know, and I think I've heard, I've read studies about um, pets, you know, and yeah. a lot of times pet owners, we, we, th- we think that the, our animal understands us, right? right. But what, what studies have shown is that they're, they're really, it's, they're doing uh, something called associative learning, which is right. mainly how animals learn. And so like whenever you make a certain gesture with your face or a certain posture, right. they associate that with, with the, the event that usually happens with it, right? So mm-hmm. we think they understand us, but they're associating our, our, our actions with a certain result. Right. I had a basset hound named George, and this was, this was really funny. I had him in college. Sometimes uh, he loved the trash. He loved to just like get in the trash and eat whatever was in there. And he always got in trouble for it. Well, um, if I ever, it was a bad idea, but if I ever left him in the house unattended, uh, sometimes I would get home and I would say, I would, I would come through the door and I'd say, Hey, George. And he would just like look at me and kind of cower down. <laughs> and I'd be like, what did you do, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because he was associating uh, an overturned garbage can and my presence with a punishment. Yeah. And uh, he, you know, if, if he had more of a human mind, he would know that I, I didn't know he'd overturned the trash, so he shouldn't be, you know, right. taking that defensive posture just yet. And not only that, but his activity is telling me what he did. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but it, it is it is so relevant to the problem of animal suffering mm-hmm. uh, because we think that this symbolic capability is is right. so it has so many philosophical and right. and theological implications. The uh, when you, you know, uh, one of the biggest ones is self-awareness. Right. And there's scientific evidence to back this up too. But philosophically, we think that whenever we have this um, this knowing of the world, you not only know things, but you know that you know. Mm-hmm. And in that process, it builds this diachronic sense of self-awareness, this mm-hmm. sense of this this knower who's existing through time. Mm-hmm. And um, there's all, but there's also scientific evidence that animals can't picture themselves in the past and the present personally. Right. But uh, but when you think about them suffering, um, it, it really is very different from what right. we would experience because we experience suffering as persons, as individuals, and we right. we also understand the world. So we say this ought not to be happening to me. You know, right. I wish this wasn't happening to me. But there's nobody in the animal kingdom. There's no body, there's no one, no person in the animal kingdom who's saying, you know, I'm suffering and I wish this wasn't happening to me right. or, or you know, worrying about their death or, you right. know, something like that. So uh, it's hard to wrap your mind around. And I, and I tell people, too, it might be impossible to imagine what it is like to be an animal that's suffering because you're casting your awareness upon yeah. this question 
Right. Uh, you're self, you know, we're self-aware beings, and when we when we cast our awareness upon what it's like to be an animal, it's in that that thought that con with that thinking of what it's like to be that is intrinsically self-aware. Yeah. So it's probably impossible to imagine what it's like. But but all of this is just evidence that they're they don't have symbolic thought like us. They're not self-aware. They don't have language. Right. So their suffering is not like ours and and I don't think it's, you know, when God allows animals to suffer, he's not allowing persons to suffer so that it's not as morally significant as human suffering yeah. is. Well, Kyle, anything else? I think we, we've we've uh, we're running close to the end here. So, any any other final thoughts before we we wrap it up? Oh, I, I think that's it. I just um, I just really enjoy you know coming to hang out with you guys at Reasons Thanks. to Believe, and it's always just amazed me uh, how much the philosophy, the the science, and the Bible all always come to yeah. come together and cohere and and give us a coherent. Yeah. Worldview. So. so, why don't you quickly tell people the name of your book if oh, they're right. interested in, in following up with with uh, some of your work on animal suffering? Yes, and uh, my dissertation has several chapters that cover things that are similar to what we were talking about today. Um, so, yeah, I wrote my dissertation on the problem of animal suffering, and it got published as a book with Wittgenstock, mm -hmm. uh, and it's called. Thomism and the problem of animal suffering. I used the the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas to help me uh, solve the problem or, or or to answer the problem. So um, so yeah, that that resource is uh, Thomism and the problem of animal suffering. Uh, people can uh, you can find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Christian Book, or Wittgenstock's uh, website. Also, um, I have an academic website. Uh, okay. It's just my name, bkylekeltz.com. Okay. It's b-k-y-l-e-k-e-l-t-z.com. And uh, I have actually kind of uh, uh, certain versions of the articles that I put together for my uh, dissertation. So if people don't want to buy the book, they can at least sure. read some of it uh, as, as individual articles on my website. Not all of it's available but uh, that's another resource if people want to look at that. Okay, good. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for being yeah. with us. And then I just want to, you know, remind uh, our, uh, our viewers and our listeners that the more we discover about science, the more we have reasons to believe. And so thank you so much for joining us on Stars, Cells, and God today. I hope this conversation was helpful and encouraging to you. And if you want to join in on the discussion, uh, please comment uh, on the YouTube video uh, we would love to hear what you think, whether you agree with us or disagree with us. We, we want to see and hear what you have to say. And uh, remember to like this video and subscribe on our Reasons to Believe YouTube channel uh, so that you can get more videos. New episodes of Star Cells and God uh, release every Thursday. So please make sure that you uh, let other people know about it um, through your social media and then last but not least, visit our website at reasons.org and follow us on a social media, RTB underscore official. So again, thanks uh, once again for, uh, to all of you uh, for watching and for listening. And until next time, God bless you.